This is episode 19 of Spokes with Grip and co-owner of Ohio Cinemotion, Patrick Ryan. You're listening to the Red Bicycle Media Spokes Podcast, a show about the experiences of a film production house and the people they work with in the film industry, with your host, James Pizarro. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I hope everyone had a great week so far. This is producer Christian coming at you with another great episode of Spokes. Before we begin, I'd like to talk about what will be going on in August on this show. We have been grateful to have interviewed some very talented directors in the last week, so we figured that we spotlight them through the month of August. We are talking about directors who have specializations, different approaches to the process, different genres, even musicals. We're going to talk about musicals. Uh, We are excited to showcase them, and we hope you can join us throughout the month of August to listen to their stories. Now, on to today's episode. You've probably seen some interesting camera moves in your favorite movies and TV shows, especially in the past few months binging on Netflix or even Disney+. Plus. But do you ever ask yourselves how they did that? How did they make that move? What rig did they do to set that up? Uh, So today we brought in a guy who has experience in creating those rigs, and his name is uh, Patrick Ryan. He has been a grip for numerous movies and TV shows, including The Fate of the Furious, White Boy Rick, True Detective, Season 3 of True Detective, excuse me, and the upcoming remake of West Side Story. And you're going to hear a lot about his process, how a set works with the grip, how the grip works with DPs, directors, and anyone else, how they interact. And also, he's going to talk about his company, Ohio Cinemotion, that he co-owns, and the products and services that they offer. So without further ado, here is Patrick Ryan. I'll start off by saying, uh, first of all, thanks for coming on, but what, do you, what have you been working on this year? Uh, well, before Corona, obviously, um, I was on a TV show in Philadelphia, an HBO series called uh, Mayor of Easttown. And it's, uh, it's like a detective drama. It's a new series. Obviously, it's not out yet. And um, yeah, we were about four months done with that. We had two months to go when the uh, pandemic hit its precipice there and we all kind of got shut down and sent back into podcasting mode what did that do for you as far as obviously uh, not being uh on set how did you spend your time um in isolation or or trying to in sheltering um i think the first few weeks were really focused on um staying active you know i like built up the home gym and like in the first week i got back and i was like adamant about staying fit because I know like how it can be when you are away from work you know all we all we do is carry heavy equipment no matter what department you're in and uh, a couple weeks away is enough to kind of fall out of shape so I just got on a routine really quickly and cleaned up my diet that's that's the first two things I did I think people underestimate how hard um, uh, the uh, G&E department works and how you're, you're literally like the roadies on, on a con- in a concert where you're the first to come and the last to leave literally on, on, on each day um, and how physical that is. So I think I take, we take that for granted. And how important is it for you to eat well and just take good care of yourself? Um, for me, it's important. I wouldn't say it's like a industry standard by any means. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that in my early 20s is when I got started in this business and I hit it pretty hard back then, worked a lot and didn't really think too much about the toll it was taking on my body and then by my late 20s I started to feel 
a little bit more broken down and you know I would hurt a lot more the next day and then I started making it like a personal point to take care of myself you know uh, if I want to be in this business for the long haul you can't just destroy yourself you know guys guys that do what we do they drop dead in their 50s of heart attacks or or they can't walk standing up straight from you know not you know just doing the physical tasks without being prepared for it <clears throat> I mean, first of all, tell me how you got started in the in the industry, and also how how you ended up um, uh, to to get where you are. Where did you start out, and um, what brought you to this part? Um, it's kind of a complicated. I mean, all I really wanted to do was make movies, so that part was easy. Um, getting there took a little bit more time. I didn't really try to go to school for it until I was about twenty three. And then I did a year in New York and my father was sick. I came home to look after him. And then after he passed away, I did odd jobs for a while. And then I just kind of like woke up one day and was like, all right, I got to pick up where I left off. And uh, I went back to New York and just started responding to Craigslist ads, like anything. Like if it said PA, if it said gaffer, I applied to all the jobs and, uh, you know, it was an interesting learning experience along the way. I uh, kind of made it up as I went, and eventually I met some really good people that connected me to other good people, and that's how it started. <clears throat> what department did you start out in, and uh, how did you end up uh, doing what you're doing now? My first paying job was in art department. Uh, I was an art department PA on a Comedy Central pilot called Michael and Michael Have Issues. And that was uh, Michael Ian Black and Michael Showalter. The show got picked up for one season, I think. Um, it was pretty funny, but I guess it just didn't hit with audiences. Um, yeah, we just drove around in a cube van all day, picking up set decoration and scenic walls and whatever they needed and loading and unloading. It was, it was more brutal than the grip department. <laughs> but I think we underestimate how important that is for, uh, for a show. And, and you know, the, uh, the art department, uh, is another uh, uh, department that gets neglected, and they, people don't realize how important that is. Almost more important than some of the actors I've seen. So uh, you got to set the <laughs> you got you got to set the mood. I'll never say that when an actor's on, but you know that's just that's what at least that's what I've seen. Uh, well, then then did you did you do any camera work, or did you just end up right in the uh, G and E department and <clears throat> and just want to do this? Well, uh, in school, I definitely thought I found my niche in cinematography. Um, everybody in the class wanted to be directors. I wanted to tell the story with the camera. And so I ended up shooting most of everybody's thesis projects. And that's where I found my comfort zone. And, you know, composition and lighting, those were things that I was passionate about and I took too quickly. Um, and then, you know, you can't typically walk into being a DP right out of school. So that takes a little bit more uh, effort and I found myself less interested in the AC world, camera assistant. Um, I just didn't, I don't know, it didn't compute to me. I'm a more physical person, not that it's not a physical job, but um, you know, there's certainly a little bit more um, kinetic energy in maybe the grip or electric department. And I started in lighting, that was where I thought I would learn in my path. Uh, and then <clears throat> Eventually at the union level, when I joined the union, it was sort of pick, grip, or electric. And I liked the proximity of the camera in the electric department, you know. 
uh, we're not just helping with lighting, but we're moving the camera. We're putting it on dollies. We're putting it on cranes, jibs, um, mounting it to vehicles, whatever. If it's not on the operator's shoulder or on a tripod, you know, it's the grip department. Did you end up then um, uh, working with all camera systems and work your way up to doing, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that, how important movement is to a shot. I think you figured out early in film school that if it's not moving, it probably is not, uh, you know, it's something that a, 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 a camera can do or, or, or just a, a photograph. So to, um, how did you know, when did you take to it that, uh, that told you, that, man, this is where I really want to be. This is where I want to spend time doing. Um, tell me about that. How did I know, <clears throat> I'm sorry, that I really wanted to be in the grip department? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, like I said, I think it was, again, the proximity to the camera. I got to be involved with lighting still, you know. Uh, we're not handling the lights for those who don't know at the union level. Uh, the grip department is specifically controlling of light, so you're shaping a light, whereas the electric department shows up and sets the light itself. So we're diffusing it, we're coloring it sometimes, we're uh, scrimming it, uh, you know, knocking it off a wall or taking it off the lower half of an actor or whatever it might be. Um, and supposed to just being a spotlight, we give it character. Um, and then on the camera side, again, the camera motion is kind of what made me decide grip department over electric and that we get to be a part of what you see on the screen um, or what you feel on the screen. Um, you know, the camera moving completely changes your experience. Um, and that being said, the camera being still changes your experience. Sometimes it's a matter of, of knowing when not to move the camera so that those camera moves become more powerful. Um, but ultimately, yeah, the camera movement is what interested me. I think you saw that with everybody who, when they first got a slider, it would just be an unmotivated slider. We called it the slider to nowhere. It was like, okay, that was cool, but why did you do it, right? There was no motivation behind the shot. Sure. Was there a particular project that, I, you know, you've obviously done a lot of work on, on uh, some pretty big projects. How did you know you were quote unquote in the big leagues and what is the difference from that and, and beside budget and whatnot than a, than a small indie project or a, um, a commercial versus a uh, narrative project. Yeah, um, I don't know that I would say I'm in the big leagues, <laughs> but th there's days where it feels like it. Um, there, there are some jobs that make you feel like, oh, I've made it. But then, you know, the next job, you might be right back to where you were. Uh, so it's just a roller coaster, you know. Um, and I don't think there is a made it in this business. Whether you spend your career in, in the smaller independent level or you only work on blockbusters, I think it's just a different kind of art, you know, you're not, um, you know, it's not a, a winning, it's not like a battle to win. Um, is, and what was the first, second part of that question? So, uh, do you, I guess I'll ask you directly, do you prefer commercial versus narrative or uh, are, do you lean toward one or the other? Do I lean towards uh, commercial versus nar uh, narrative? For sure. Um, I find commercials, they can be challenging in their own way and you can certainly do some very creative things in the commercial world. Um, and some of the more complicated setups I've ever done have been on commercials. Um, that being said, there's just a little bit lack of camaraderie in that world, unless it's on a more local level and you're working with a lot of smaller crews and the same people all the time. But on the bigger commercials, uh, you know, just everybody comes in from everywhere. Not a lot of people have a relationship and it can be, 
I don't know, it just feels a little disconnected. Um, versus a narrative, it's usually a longer form. You're shooting four weeks or six months and you get to know those people and they become your family because you're spending, you know, God knows, 80 hours or more a week with them. <clears throat> well, how important is it then to, I mean, I, I think I know the answer, but tell me about how, um, first of all, how you found, if you can, you build your team. Have you ever been tasked to do that? And how important is it to have, you know, that you have each other's backs. I know you work with a lot of the same people all the time when you have control over that. And I think that that, that gets overlooked a lot in this industry that, you know, it can be as simple as that you're, you're just somebody that people wants to work with rather than not, correct? For me, it's relationships first, um, and then obviously experience second. So you wanna be surrounded by people that are talented and uh, know more than you, ideally. If you're a department head, I think it's, you know, find, if you're a key grip, find a dolly grip that knows more about pushing dolly than you do. Um, or at least, you know, uh, is in the same league. Like, try to try to surround yourself with people that, that become your strengths. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, there's always room for new people in this business. So it can't always be a stacked roster. You need to have young people you need to have people with less experience to you know, they have to have that opportunity to grow so um i think it's important to have a well-rounded department and it starts with relationships if you can get along with each other you're gonna have a much better job because at the end of the day it's not going to matter how well you set that c stand it's going to matter like how how many laughs did you have together when the day was over you know like i said you spent 80 hours a week together like if it's not a little bit fun, it's going to be really miserable. <laughs> I can only imagine. No, and, and trust me, I've been on those kind of sets where, you know, you're glad it's a payday, but at the same time, if it can be fun at the same time, that makes that makes such a huge difference. Yeah, uh, I mean, we all got in this to, you know, have fun. Like, nobody got in this thinking, like, I really want to make movies. I feel like it'd be really hard. <laughs> can, are, are you able to discuss how this is such a team sport versus, uh, because everybody feels that I can just get a camera and, I should be good to go, just hire a couple people and, and then move on from there. Can Tell me how important the, the team aspect is of, of all this. I think that that team aspect is incredibly important. I think that it becomes more important the larger scale the production gets. Um, every department becomes their own team um, working on this, on this greater team. Um, it's sort of like a football team that like you know, you have your, your director as your quarterback, I guess, and then you have, they have an offensive line and they and you have defense and you have your special teams and it's all these little different units um, that are on the same team, but they're working, you know, separately together. Um, <clears throat> and the bigger the production gets, the more important those teams become. Uh, a lot of times you're operating autonomously with um, a little bit of direction from this person or that person. And then, you know, it's up to that unit to kind of uh, take charge and, and be ambitious. Not I think good. that's certainly true in uh, art and lighting and grip, uh, all those departments. Are you able to seek out when there's, um, because I, I, I believe that filmmaking is really just troubleshooting. I mean, it, uh, much, of, much of it is that, that anybody can set a camera or think they know the basics of working a dolly, but how much of your work is troubleshooting? What percentage do you feel? Um, I think in the grip department, there's a little bit more freedom there because 
we kind of invent a lot of what our equipment does. It's more, you know, it's like an erector set, so it's not as technical like a like a, an electronic ballast for an HMI. If you're struggling with that, that's a pretty technical troubleshooting. I mean, there's the basics of, you know, um, swapping out header cable, swapping out ballast, swapping out heads, checking the bulb. But then when you get to the point of identifying that there's an issue with the ballast, that becomes, you know, certainly much more complicated. Um, but in the grip department, we get to like make things up. So if you're making a car rig and there's something that's limiting you, um, you just change, you just pivot the way you're building the rig and then you come up with a new concept. Um, as far as like dolly equipment goes, tallies are pretty durable. Um, I think that troubleshooting with dollies is more about knowing how to set up the dolly for the comfort. Uh, and ease of operation. Now, when I say comfort, I don't mean like uh, it's a cushy seat or like, you know, they have a cup holder on there to hold their latte. It's more like, it's more like, um, you know, am I designing this move so that it's physically easiest for the operator to execute, whatever that might be, which way the chassis faces on the track, um, where you're, you know, if it's a, a jib arm move, like, how you're using the arm, like are you arcing up and over or are you um, starting from one side and arcing up and then dollying back and over. And that can dramatically change the experience of an operator because if they're using wheels for a remote head, if they have to change the direction with which they're panning because of the arc of the arm halfway through the move, that is, that's a very mentally complicated task because you have to like, you're, you're rolling the wheels and then you have to stop at the right speed and then change directions but you don't want to see the camera do that. And that's, you know, uh, really great operators can do it no problem. But certainly it's easier if you can design the move so that they don't have to, to make those kinds of adjustments. So that they can just continue to move through and come to a, a gradual stop. Um, and things like that are the troubleshooting that I experience. Um, not so much like technical troubleshooting of equipment. Especially when you have uh, repetitive movements. I imagine that's difficult. So, Absolutely. So Pat, oh, Patrick, like a typical day when you're getting on set, obviously if you know what you're shooting and we'll take it, uh, you, you have the, the, the scripts in advance. Once you get on set, who do you, who do you want to interface with? That's my first question. Or who do you usually interface with? Um, I guess it depends on the set and my job title. Um, I'm sorry. Say you're the dolly grip uh, for the day, and uh, sure. you're, you're gonna, or you're gonna have some dialogue moves, and 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 maybe uh, you know a couple complicated setups, but uh, just general general dialogue scene. Just say you're going into, uh, you're setting up a wide shot, and just bringing uh, just a kind of um, uh, dollying into a character. I mean, like a typical sure. intro shot. Um, I think the first thing I would do is you know. Um Set up the dolly. Um, well, certainly talk to the DP, find out if we're starting on a dolly. Um, and if it is, then you get the dolly on set and you have it ready to go, ready for camera to land on if they're not already on it. Um, and then, you know, you're talking to the DP and the key grip together as a dolly grip and you're devising a plan of what is the shot. And if it has movement, you know, what kind of movement are we creating here? Um, is this, is this, uh, are we just holding overs, you know, in this dialogue scene? Is it just an over the shoulder and we just want to be on a piece of track so that if the actor moves in or out or left or right, we can just make sure we keep the other actor clean of them. 
Um, or are we trying to create some sort of emotional feeling here? Are we trying to have a gradual push in? Um, maybe we start over the shoulder, but it pushes into some sort of tight, um, and that's you know synonymous with the with the emotional narrative that's taking place in the scene. Um, but for the most part, yeah, you're just finding out where the camera's going and how it wants to move. When you're talking to a DP, what what are things that a DB can do better, or what I, we could turn it around and say, what frustrates you when you you don't have um, the information you need to do your job? What how, is there a way? And you've worked a lot of DPs. What distinguishes them to, uh, uh, in your mind, that makes them better or easier to work with? Um, what makes them better or easier to work with? I think it doesn't matter who the person you're working with. It could be the DP or the the director or the key grip or. Um, you know, somebody else in your department. Um, I think communication is the most important thing. Uh, there's so many times that, especially because there's so many people and it is such a team sport like we were talking about earlier, um, you might have a conversation with one person about this is what we're doing. And sometimes there might be like an implied sense that because you spoke it out loud once, the whole world knows. Um, and a lot of times that's not the case. And a lot of times things change in a moment's notice. It happens often, you know. Something something comes up, you know. An actor can't make the make it to set on time, or um, makeup or wardrobe needs a little bit more turnaround time to get that actor back to set um, than anticipated. And instead of just sitting around waiting, maybe you try to pivot and get something that you weren't set up for. Um, but if not everybody's informed in a timely fashion that we're pivoting. Um, that can certainly slow the process down, or it can create frustrations for the people who get caught behind. Um, and I think you know that's not that's not special to the grip department. That's for everybody. I think that you know anybody wants to be kept in the loop and know what's happening. Uh, it gives them a chance to stay ahead of the game. Do you usually have a feed on on your dolly to see obviously what uh, what the move is? Are you looking? It, I guess it really depends on what your view of the camera is. Sometimes you're able to get a feed. That's my first question. Number two, do you usually have overheads that you refer to or are, are they basically on the day saying, hey, here's what it's gonna be, you know, the usual push in and then they direct you as you go? When you say overheads, you mean like some sort of like a plot, like yep, um, yep. camera moves? Uh -huh. I would say once in a while, I think for very complicated camera moves, sometimes you plot them out. I don't know that they're plotted out very far in advance because Again, things change so quickly. When you plan too much ahead, uh, things tend to change on the day when you get there. And I'm sorry, what was the first part of the question? No, basically, if you have, um, I think we talked about if you have a, 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 um, a camera or, or a, a monitor feed from, uh, from what you're looking at, is that, is that, is that uh, usually the, the case or, or do you have um, a view of the camera? Do you try to put yourself in a position on the view of the camera? Um, Certainly a monitor can be helpful depending on what the type of move is. Uh, if you're holding overs, um, a monitor is, you know, it's not crucial, but it makes that a lot easier if you're the dolly grip and, and you're just trying to keep keep the over clean so that um, the operator doesn't have to do too much adjustment. And at some point, they can adjust for it, you know. If an actor leans too far to the left, the operator can't pan out of it. They have to, the dolly has to move. In that case, a monitor is super helpful. Um, I don't always have a monitor set up. Uh, on my dolly. I find working off marks uh, and instinct is a little bit more intuitive. Um, and you end up being distracted less. Sometimes the monitor ends up being a distraction because you end up watching the show. 
Um, you know, and if it's if you're working on something interesting, it can be interesting, and uh, sometimes that that can be a distraction to when you should be making your move or or whether or not you're hitting your marks accurately. And I don't know. I, I just always preferred to go off marks, but they're both tools, and you use them when it's the right tool. I don't think one is. Uh, you don't live and die by either. It reminds you of directors who don't like video villages and want to, you know, direct actors actually not not be not sit isolated from the set and just be watching a monitor and directing from there. So, you know, that sure. that, that definitely makes sense. So, as far as setups, then okay, can we pivot to uh, car rigs versus? Um, uh, versus a static rig. Have, uh, how? What's your experience in setting up a car rig? And do you do a poor man's process, or is there a, a mixture of a process trailer? Or where are you? Uh, are you about fifty-fifty, or it, I guess it depends on budget. Um, yeah, I don't know if budget dictates it too much. I'm sure that that those decisions are made um, because of budget. Sometimes, when we did um, True Detective season three. And I believe on season two they did the same thing, but I wasn't on season two. They did all poor man's, all poor man's process. We did very little car rigging, very little actual driving shots. Only when being in those spaces um, was absolutely necessary, like when you had to be, like the shot might include you leaving the vehicle and in, moving into the space, you know. So we shot a lot of uh, cars arriving and departing. Um, with car rigs or or like a pursuit arm type of setup um, that might include like a jib arm on like a grip trips type of vehicle or on a, a process trailer type of vehicle. But then all of the interior car stuff, all dialogue, all that stuff, we did poor man's. It just becomes more cost effective and you have more control. I mean, when you think about the logistics of shooting like a long dialogue scene on a process trailer, it means you've got a car like being towed by by a trailer of sort or by a, a tractor of sorts um, this this insert car and you have the cameras physically rigged to it so you're making like a, a rigging with speed rail things like that um, and you've made a grid for the cameras to attach to and move where they want to go and then of course you're supplementing that with lighting and so maybe you have an 8x frame attached to the car as well maybe you have an overhead that's a 12 by um, taking out reflections from the windshield because as you're driving, um, the sky changes. It could go from a perfectly beautiful shot to just nothing but the reflection of the sky. Um, and that's a that's a lot of material and a lot of variables. And then you put it on a vehicle that's going to then tow it around town at 35 miles an hour. You put eight people on the back of it, including the director. They're in the they're in the elements. You know, you have a little canopy. You're a little bit covered, but otherwise, you're if it's raining, you're in the rain. If it's if it's wind uh, windy, I mean, and you're driving, so there's wind the whole time. So you end up being exposed, and you have a lot of um, limitations. Not to mention uh, liability, right? I mean, sure, yeah, certainly liability. There's some danger involved. Obviously, a lot of times you're doing it on closed roads, but you don't have to. I would say most of the time I've done process trailer, it's been on open roads. You have police escorts in front of you and behind you um, that are, you know, trying to keep people out of your lane. But ultimately, you're on the road with other pedestrian drivers who are rubbernecking because they don't know what what's going on. They don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> um, and yeah, it can be it can be a little nerve wracking. But ultimately, I think from a directorial standpoint, why would you want to put yourself in that position? Um, 
if the scene is truly just about the dialogue taking place, put it on a stage, put it in front of a green screen. Um, you have the ability to do so much more interesting things with your shots. You can, and you can certainly do all these things on a process trailer that just become more complicated and maybe a little bit more limiting. Um, but you could design a shot that comes off the windshield looking straight in on a driver that wraps around to the side of the car um, and turns into an over-the-shoulder, and that could be how you open the scene, or you know, just various types of things that would be a lot harder to execute on a process trailer. Um, for one reason in particular, just keeping the rig out of the shot. If you've got something rigged up overhead of the car, that means you have some sort of uprights in the back. So when you start pivoting around the vehicle, you're likely to reveal one of those uprights. And certainly if you're lighting from that perspective, you're going to have a lamp probably somewhere behind them as an edge light. Um, and then it becomes challenging to block those out, whereas on a green screen, you can simply build walls of green in front of the lighting elements, and then you remove them post. And these days, obviously, uh, post is a lot, is becoming more cost effective than some of those um, practical executions. Have you followed much on virtual sets now, uh, what they've done on Mandalorian and what Matt Workman has been doing? And uh, and, and you really see that it's probably going to eliminate a lot of that, um, you know, uh, process trailer work or, or other work that can actually be picked up quite well. It's, I don't know if you've seen any of that. It's pretty darn interesting. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty interesting what you can do these days and how you can create a world that looks and feels very real without, um, you know, it used to be when CG happened, you knew it was happening. Uh, and even when you knew, you were like, that looks really good and you got excited. But now you're like, I don't have conversations about how good the CG is because I don't know when I'm looking at CG anymore. And uh, you know, like you just don't. You just don't. Yeah, know. you just don't. Um, it is interesting. Another point on the that leading back to the process trailer thing, I do feel like I'm seeing process trailer more on lower budget stuff these days because um, they don't have much of a post budget, which is crazy to me because I I don't you know I'm not a producer I don't know the math but um, I really have to think that. It would be so much, so much more cost effective to just plop it in front of a green screen and, and just shoot a couple plates and, and pull it out. I mean, almost anybody can do it on their own computer at home these days with with After Effects, and it's not, you know. And I know it's not that simple, but uh, the the process trailer I think is is the dying art, um, and that's great. I think you know. There's just eliminate... a better way of doing things, like anything else, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's evolving. I mean, what you could do with a rear projection screen and, and well-placed cameras and lights is, is pretty amazing. I think. Sure. So if, if I, to, to, to also segue into one of your more challenging um, uh, uh, shoots, is it, was there a shoot that you really enjoyed? Or I know they're all, you know, they're, I, I like them to like kids or children. Y'all love the projects you've been on. But was there a particular project that you said, man, I could, I could do this all day long or I really love doing it? Um, oof. Yeah, I think I've, I've had a few like that. Um, some in different capacities. So last summer, I was lucky enough to um, work in New York with uh, Mitch Lillian, um, who's Roger Deakins Key Grip. So for me, like, I know a lot of people get excited about Roger Deakins. I get excited about Roger Deakins. It's very cool. Uh, I've never had the opportunity to work with him, but I get, you know, where I'm at in my career, I get more excited about the guys that work with Roger Deakins. Like, I want to know those guys. I want to work with those guys. And um, I'm lucky enough to have done three projects with Mitch now, but 
I was on West Side Story for about uh, six weeks last summer, and obviously it's it's uh, Spielberg and Janusz Kaminski, and that kind of level is uh, humbling, no matter where you're at in your career, I think, unless you've been working with them for, for 20 years. But uh, it's interesting the kind of, I don't know, the way perspectives can change um, from what you've seen in the past. Obviously, and you learned was, something. Yeah, I'd love to know. Yeah, what, I mean, you know, <laughs> what was the experience? Everybody like? probably always wonders. I wonder how Janusz lit that or whatever. But you know, when you do it for six weeks, you get to see it. And to a certain extent, a lot of it is is um, he certainly has a style. He certainly has go-to units and, and things like that. And that's really interesting to study. But then there's just the workflow because a job like that is so fast-paced at times, and um, the setups can be so large. You know, we were, I think, 16 to 20 grips on any given day. Um, and we didn't stop moving. I mean, you didn't stop moving. And it was it was in the middle of summer. It was like 100 degrees outside every day in the, you know, uh, mostly Harlem streets, um, you know, surrounded by concrete. So it's even hotter. And you're just constantly getting crushed. And you feel great. Like you're there, you're working with Spielberg, you're like, this is the worst day of my life, but this is also the best day of my life. Like, and if I felt like that every day, I mean, I'm sure that gets old, uh, you know, the longer you do this. But for me, that was a, a really exciting time. Unfortunately, I had to leave that job because I had an accident offset and broke my collarbone. But other than that, it was, uh, it was an amazing experience. And uh, yeah, I don't know. How did probably that one of the best. I mean, obviously there are specific things that, you know, there's subtle things that you learn, but what what did you see overall? Was it workflow preparation? Was it, you know, uh, just how they executed that made them, you know, uh, arguably the best in the game? Um, I don't think that's, um, yeah, money. Money is the difference. Um, I was trying to think of a more diplomatic way to say it. I don't think that you have to have a great game plan or be most streamlined production or efficient um, in order to be uh, to be the best in the game. Money helps. I'm sure that that was the case when they started. I'm sure that being efficient was, uh, you know, and I'm not saying they aren't. I'm just saying that when you have money, you know, it makes things a lot easier. We would have an insert on insert car on call every day in case we wanted to randomly decide to do a shot towing a vehicle um, or tracking down tracking down a street uh, cameras on the back of that platform. We had an electric car on call every day in case we randomly decided we wanted to put a jib on an, uh, on an electric car and do some sort of tracking jib shot. We had a techno crane every day and that techno crane was essentially what they shot 90% of the movie, at least when I was there, it's what they shot 90% of the movie on. Um, you know, from a camera perspective, the B camera was always on dolly from what I could see, and A camera was always on a techno. Um, and that dolly grip was uh, Brendan Lowry, who's um, very, very talented dolly grip. He comes from this, uh, this grip dynasty in New York, the Lowry families. If you look up the local 80, uh, I'm sorry, the local 52 um, grip registry, like about... 20% of the names will have the last name Lowry. Um, but yeah. So I don't know that uh, there's one thing in particular that makes them the best, but certainly the more money you get, the more it helps because you, you have options and you're not limited to um, 
to just what you planned for. And I know specifically you might you might not be able to just say what how say the things that made you uh, that you ended up pick, uh, picking up, but you. Did you pick up small, subtle things that you maybe incorporated your own uh, style or say, okay, I'm going to do it that way next time? Were there things like that? You know, I find I do more of my learning in that way um, on some of the more smaller jobs or um, not smaller, sort of middle of the road jobs. Um, so maybe it's a smaller production but still has a lot of the same types of toys and tools as a bigger production but you tend to get a little bit closer to the action in those environments. You know, when you're one of 20 grips, it's kind of hard to get in there and get lessons, especially because you're busy, you're working. When they're on a job that has a little bit more downtime, um, there's a little bit more opportunity to grow. So I did a lot of learning on True Detective season three. Jimmy Shelton was the key grip. He had brought in a, a group of guys that were really great to work for. Dan Gerald, bested for him. Dan Gerald's from here in Cleveland. That's who I came up under in the grip department. And um, Adam Sattel was this guy from, from Los Angeles he brought in, as well as Craig Brown, who's a, uh, a grip probably in his mid to late 60s who's been doing it forever. And he knows all the little tips and tricks that, like, when you spend six months with a guy like that, you start to really learn some things. Um, and then, um, you know, partway through, he brought in Tim Jipping. And if you look up any of these guys and you look at their IMDb pages, you'll see like, oh, yeah, there's a lot to learn there. Uh, Tim Jipping is like the ultimate mercenary grip. He goes all over the country and works on the biggest jobs for the best keys. And he just is always, always getting exposed to more and more and learning more and more. He, he, um, he was a, a valuable asset to my to my growth when I worked with him. But Jimmy Shelton, I think, was key to that as well. He's one of the most patient key grips I've ever worked with. If he sees somebody doesn't understand something, he takes the time to teach them. And if there's no time to teach while you're on set, he'll, he'll come revisit you later and be like, hey, I know that I had to take that project away from you, but let me talk you through why we did what we did and how we did it. Um, as opposed to, yeah, it's there's not a lot of people that have that kind of patience or memory. Um, and he certainly helped me a lot in not only learning how to, to be a grip, but also how to be a leader. Um, because that, I think, is a big part of, you know, being a key grip myself or just being a team member. If you know how to lead your other crew people, your other grips that are working alongside you. That certainly breeds loyalty, and and I'm sure that's something that hopefully you can just pass on to the people that are under you. Because you know, you, we assume a lot. It's very intimidating to walk on a set for the first time, and you know, you always feel like, where do I, where do I even put my, you know, my gear down, or where do I stand? And you know, I think it's important to feel that it's a welcoming environment and, and bringing people in. So you, you um, in this time, recently started a, a, a company. So uh, you want to talk about that a bit and uh, what that entails? Yeah, me and my partner, Billy O'Boyle, we started a camera motion company here in Cleveland called Ohio Cinemotion. Um, kind of right on the nose there with the name. Uh, we're basically trying to focus on being a camera movement support company. So if you need to move the camera, you want to put it on a dolly, we have dolly to rent. You need to do a jib shot, crane shot, we have access to these things. Uh, electric cars, um, car rigging, you want to mount the camera to the car. 
you know, we're trying to be the answer to uh, to anyone in town that needs to figure out how to move the camera or get a shot that they don't know how to get. Like, it's great. Everybody's got a gimbal, and we all know we can do fun stuff with that, but sometimes it's not the right tool for the job, and it still has its limits. So what is the solution? Um, what is the solution when it's not a gimbal or a drone? What do I do with the camera? Um, how, do I get it, how do I get this shot? And we want to help people figure that out. Um, you know, it could be as simple as just hiring us to come out and be your dolly grip for the day, or you could have some kind of really complicated shot that you just want to work out with some with somebody. Call us. We'll talk it through. We'll figure out how to do it. And then, you know, we can figure out what equipment is required to do it. And, you know, uh, certainly that equipment can change on budgets. So there's solutions a lot of times for every level. And I, I think that's important for people to know that just because you think you're a low-budget operation, if you're a kid in film school and you have a thesis project, if you're a local production company and, and you feel like you don't have the, the means for this, for this, this commercial that you're doing um, to get access to certain equipment, I think you should think less about the equipment and think more about what the goal is. Um, and we're always willing to take a phone call and for people to consult with us about what that solution might be. Because there's always options that maybe are more affordable and certainly, um, from my perspective, when it comes to students in the area, Cleveland Film, uh, sorry, Cleveland State Film Program or Tri-C's Film Program, um, I want them specifically to know, like, if they want to add something to their thesis projects, call us. Like, we want to work with you and we, you know, we're not trying to just take your money. We're, we're giving student discounts and things of that nature. We want to help the community grow, not just not just, you know, make money. I think it's important because a lot of people, uh, whether they're, especially small productions, think, oh man, we just can't, let's just rent a Dana Dolly or just do it this way and then uh, get by it. They don't realize there's other options and other other uh, um, op uh, options to do, to do these bigger moves, so to speak. And, and really they're hiring you for not just the gear, but your experience. And, you know, from what you've stated, you, you've shot on everything. and. And I think that's super valuable just to at least do that. Now, are they able to at least give you, like you said, give a phone call and say, hey, could we arrange, so it's not just answering questions, but can we arrange a consultation? And I'd love a day of your time or, a, or hours of your time. Is that something that it's just negotiable then? Yeah, certainly. I think that would be something that we can negotiate on a project-to-project -project basis, and it would probably break down like just an hourly consultation fee if you know someone were looking for that type of service. Um, but you know, I will say the consultation will only get someone so far. Uh, I'm open to it and I'll consult anybody that wants to be consulted, but I think that you're going to have a lot more value out of having somebody like myself on set because as I said throughout this podcast, things change quickly and we could consult all day on what we think is going to be the plan. And when things change on the day, if the consultation didn't talk about what to do, if that changes, then you're just... You're left uh, trying to make it up on your own. I guess, so, what, I guess what I'm saying is to help help with the pre-production, knowing what is required on the show. and then Sure, absolutely, and yeah. Obviously, eventually hire. Now, um, any new equipment that you have that you'd you know, like to uh, let the audience know that, that you're, you said you're, uh, a lot of equipment is uh, available, but what do you, what do you have in-house that, that uh, you can uh, bring on set and then obviously rent out? Yeah, um, 
we have a Chapman Super Pee Wee 3, uh, which is my personal favorite dolly. It's like, I think, the perfect size for most productions. It's considered a smaller dolly, but it's bigger than a... Um, it's bigger than a uh, Fisher 11, which is a, a small dolly and great for really specific things, but I find it to be uh, a little tippy. You know, it wants to tip over because it's so it has such a narrow wheelbase, um, and the arm seems to be a little less stable. I feel like the moves aren't as uh, precise as they can be with the Chapman. Um, and I know everybody has their preference on which dolly they like over the other. I find usefulness out of all of them. Um, but yeah, our Super Pee Wee 3 is our, is our landmark dolly, and we try to push that on most commercials. Uh, it's versatile because it's smaller, it fits in tighter spaces, it's a, it's a little bit bigger than the 11, so it has the, the strength and the ability to do some more complicated stuff that you need a bigger dolly to do. Um, I just picked that uh, one up at B&H, right? I mean, that's just... You just ordered it online and it came in, correct? Yeah, exactly. No, it's actually, Chapman's tough. It's a complicated process for any of these camera dollies. You have to go uh, apply for a lease, get on a waiting list. You have to uh, go take a certification program. They want to know that whoever they're leasing these dollies to is qualified to maintain them. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of a process, but it only makes us better at the job. I think it's super interesting because a lot of people don't know that there's a process in doing that. I mean that that you just can't buy these things. That you, you ha there there is a process in in yeah. And you and if you, you could couldn't even own one be, if you wanted to. I mean they're all yeah. leased, right? That's, that's and if you could buy them, they'd be outrageously expensive. They would charge you like two hundred thousand dollars for for a little dolly. You're like a dolly or a Lamborghini? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which one I want. Well, um, listen. First of all, how, we where can we find you? Uh, OhioCinemotion.com. Trying to keep it super easy. Uh, we also have an Instagram, OhioCinemotion, on Instagram. Um, that's our main points of contact, and that's where you can find us. Well, first of all, I, I really appreciate you spending time with us, and uh, you know, I'd love to have you on again. I'm sure there's other projects coming on. Yeah, me too. Uh, this was a blast. I love this podcast, and I love that you guys have been doing this. I think it's been fun way to sort of engage the community and and stay. Uh, keep your head in the game a little bit and just stay sharp. And that's our show today. We'd like to thank Patrick for coming on and talking about his career as a grip. And if you're interested in filming here in Ohio and need some jibs, dollies, or even a steady cam with an operator, by the way, uh, check out Ohio Cinemotion. Again, their site is ohiocinemotion.com. They're on Instagram and Facebook. Check us out at redbicyclemedia.com. We are on Instagram as Red Bicycle Media. James is on as JTP Redbike, and I am on as C underscore PIZ23. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>